0: Are you all ready to join me today in our trip to outer space? Come along
1: quietly or not. I will talk to you about. For there is nothing else. Some artists make a hook. Like a hook. time old man old men always do ran with the guineas
0: back when the guineas were tough i ran when i could look good doing it too <laughs> i'm no help to you my tailor's dead
1: hello folks and welcome to another episode of the planet shivers podcast i am albert shivers and on this episode it's a good one today it's a real nice little good episode We got Don Wilson and Isaac Wilson back on the show. Don Wilson's got lots more to talk about in this his fourth visit to the show. And I'm very excited. Before you get all crazy though, this was recorded pre-corona, so don't go nutty on me. Right now, as a matter of fact, Don Wilson is working on a mural down in Easton. And I'll get you more information on that in a bit. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to talk about a little somber note here. A little quick, a little bit of a somber note I I got yesterday was that jazz dancer and singer Mabel Lee died at 97 years old. Um, Mabel Lee was known as the queen of the soundies. So soundies were like short music videos of the 30s and 40s into the 50s a little bit and they were either played one of two ways. They were either shown before and in the middle or after films at a movie theater or they were originally intended to be used on video jukeboxes. Now video jukeboxes are not really too known about and they were more popular at the time in England. So imagine a jukebox and rather than having the 45s in it this had a bunch of 16mm films and somehow the mechanics of the machinery could play the film and you'd be able to stand there and look at a video play right in front of you. These video jukeboxes were not that popular in the States. They were more popular in Europe mainly the UK but there were thousands of these, these soundies and at first the big musicians, Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Benny Goodman, Ella Fitzgerald, the singers were all leery to do this. You know, it was a new technology, they were all a little leery to, to take part in it. So what it ended up doing was boosting up lesser known big bands who didn't feel they had anything to lose by doing a video. Well Mabel Lee again she did over a hundred soundies, whether it was being a featured dancer, featured singer and dancer, or just being in the chorus line in the back, she always stood out. If you're YouTube in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to put links to some of Mabel Lee's videos in the, in the description below. This way you can go check out her work. I learned about her through a DVD that I picked up called Half Past Jump Time, which is a DVD compilation of all these old jazz soundies. And she's all over the DVD. And um, she was very popular amongst the circles. She worked with everybody from Duke Ellington, Johnny Hodges, Count Basie, um, the main guy, Louis Jordan, who put her in some films of his. Mainly the the film, I think it was 1947... Wheat Petite and Gone. She also was a, in a film called Ebony Parade, and she was on the cover of Ebony magazine in 1947. My notes have fallen here. A man is not a man without his notes. Anyway, but where this really comes into play, where I kind of come into play here, is before I was doing this podcast, I was trying to do another podcast. And it was going to be an old-time music podcast only, from the early 40s backwards in time. And I would play the music and talk about the music, give some background, that kind of thing. It didn't really pan out. I ran, It was, became more trouble than it was worth. And I took a little breather and I started this podcast. Well, as I got rolling with the original podcast, which was called Roots Revival Meeting... I started to get interested in bringing people on who were either from that time, experienced it or remembered it in some other way or was an expert on it. Experts tend to be boring. I wanted people who had firsthand accounts. And in the research I had done, I found out that Mabel Lee was still alive, living in New York. So a year later and a whole bunch of emails, because she didn't have her own email address, so I was doing all sorts of research and finding people who may have been in contact with her through dance halls and dance troops. It was an email chain, I'm not kidding, that went from New York to California, or, yeah, New York to California to Canada, all the way then to Korea, where apparently Mabel Lee was running or working as the head of a dance school there. So this guy in Korea has her phone number. I pitch my case to him about why I want to interview her, the whole bit, and he gives me her number. But he goes, look, he goes, don't tell anybody that I'm the one who gave you the number. So I said, look, I don't know nothing. I'll worry about it if it comes up. I take a day to think about my pitch. I call her up. She had a a in-home caregiver Who puts Mabel Lee on the phone now here's where it got a little swervy okay there was no Mabel Lee definitely wanted to talk but whenever it came up about being recorded she would get leery now I wasn't even pushing video recording I was just gonna go to her and do an audio recording I was very plain with my with my plan. I told her about the podcast and all these different things, and we ended up speaking two times on the phone, about forty minutes each, where she would just launch into these stories about her career. But once again, once we started talking about we should when we could meet up to record, she'd start to back off. Um, I even in a last ditch effort in the second conversation pitched her the idea of doing um, the interview over the phone but there was some reason why she wasn't too keen on being recorded but was willing to talk to me a whole bunch about it we had two 40 plus minute conversations over the phone um on the second call i did end up the phone i had had the ability to record conversation, but it would only record small chunks. Plus, I wasn't too thrilled about recording anybody when they don't know it. That's not the right thing to do. Um, she didn't want to be recorded, so I have her saying, I think, like just hello to me or something. And then I just exit out. You know, that didn't feel right. But I urge you guys to go check her out. Um, In our conversations, which would take me a long time to cover, I don't want to take away from Don's episode here. So we're going to go from a jazz legend to a living legend in Don Wilson. And on this episode, which I am excited about, I'm sad about Mabel Lee, but I'm excited about Don Wilson. We cover a lot of stuff in a short amount of time on this episode. We cover him... A little bit more of his his tactics of being an art teacher we cover the art he was doing when he was living in san francisco in the 60s which inadvertently you got to cover the vietnam war so we talk a little bit about that we talk about don's interest in animation then we get into how he became a vegetarian and also don wilson keeping an eye on the long beach police department all very interesting stories, very fun. Don is a, is a fountain of information and wisdom. And I think you guys will enjoy this episode. I enjoyed recording it and I enjoyed working on it and listening to it again. I also want to thank Isaac for being on this episode and helping out with the recording. I hope you guys enjoy it. You could find this podcast and more, obviously, where you're listening to it now, be it a major podcast platform or YouTube. And you could find all sorts of updates on the Albert Shivers Patreon page and the Albert Shivers Instagram page at the little at Albert Shivers. It's that easy. It's my name. And um, I'm going to be doing more Mabel Lee-related stuff this week to kind of keep her memory going. I urge you to take a look at some footage below. And I even strongly, more strongly, urge you to enjoy this episode with Don Wilson, and I'll talk to you on the other side of it. So you can could, could just start right now. Okay. Well, yeah.
0: So going back to uh, my last teaching experience, which was in uh, New Jersey, uh, First thing, when students came in the first day, I just asked them to look around and uh, look outside. And anything that was created by people, uh, it was either well-designed or poorly designed. So I just wanted to make them uh, aware that um, knowledge of design and cost factors and all that, aesthetic factors, we're all involved in you know everything that people make, be it art or be it a car or a building. And uh, I asked them to write down or talk about, and also write down on a sheet of paper what their expectations were in the class, what they hoped to gain from from taking the class, whether it was one semester or you know a full year, and. Um, And the the other thing is the concept, as I think I mentioned before, uh, the school community is made up of parts. And uh, even within the school, we have the English department, mathematics and so forth. Uh, So the idea was I wanted to encourage them to as much as possible uh, make connections with the other departments in the school. So for instance, uh, one of the homework assignments that we give them would be to interpret a piece of uh, literature, a a statement or Mm -hmm. a phrase from a story. Um, In the spring, the English department always put out a creative writing book. So the idea was that they could connect with one of the people that wrote the piece, whether it was a poem or uh, prose, whatever it might be, and work with that person to illustrate it. Mm-hmm. There wasn't an illustration with every single piece, but that was an opportunity for them to uh, to actually have something um, be utilized. Um, there's one thing I, I kept uh, all the, for the 26 years I was there, one of the things that I kept uh, in the background later as a course was photography first room I was in, we had two enlargers and I kept them in the storage room It was a long mm-hmm. storage room so they were able the more advanced students were able to use that and uh, develop black and white prints from that I really encouraged them to learn silk screening which they did and also etching so uh, these are really important because then they would be free to give prints to friends Mm -hmm. or sell them if they wanted to do that. Um, The other thing was, of course, then if we did batik, batik, which we did at some point where you're dyeing cloth and using wax resist, they could also silk screen on that surface as well as metal, whatever they might find. Mm -hmm. We started to do, toward the end, we started to do, instead of using ink, To silk screen with, we started experimenting with getting the right viscosity for uh, ceramic glazes. So you could roll out a slab of thin slab of clay and fire it, bisque fire it, Mm -hmm. and then the second time, you would and you would make that slab of clay the size of the silk screen. Mm -hmm. Silk screen goes on it, and instead of squeegeeing ink across, you use glaze. So what you had then was an impervious, once it was fired, it was impervious on the surface. Mm -hmm. So we we got to that. Um, Besides basically drawing and painting, which are obviously very important, I tried to stress perspective because Mm -hmm. that gives some authority to the drawing or the idea. Um, We also did a lot of uh, ceramics and sculpture, either wheel thrown or ceramic sculpture, because obviously some people are more Adept at working three dimensionally rather than on a flat surface, and uh, so that was important. The other thing was, I think I mentioned to you earlier, was uh, mixed media because mixed media is basically encompassing anything and everything within reason, um, especially if we started running out of certain supplies, we could use uh, found objects, you know, to mm-hmm. work with. Um, We did play sometimes, just purposeful play. So I would give them, especially beginning classes, I would give them a sheet of paper. We didn't use blindfolds, but we could have asked them to close their eyes, take a pen or a pencil. Pen worked better with their eyes closed, feeling where the paper is, anchoring it with one hand and with their dominant hand or non-dominant hand. Scribble for three minutes on the paper without looking at it. And then open your eyes, look at it and develop it into something specific in mm-hmm. the next 20 minutes you know, and the class would be over. So um, the other thing, I did challenge them sometimes uh, with uh, what I call drawing marathons. Very few people did this. It was more people who were uh, uh, considering uh, majoring in art in college or in a technical school and uh, I would ask them, home on a Saturday and just sequester themselves in their room or wherever they typically could do drawings and just draw for eight or ten hours straight and you know go out and use the bathroom or get something to eat. <laughs> but And a lot of them either worked on one painting or did a series of maybe 10 or 15 different drawings that may or may not be um, you know related.
1: So what what uh, did you feel the benefit of that would be to a student to draw uh, <clears throat> basically all day?
0: Okay, if you if you think about, uh, I think we all had this experience where you're uh, some people procrastinate putting off uh, doing something that seems uh, overwhelming, uh, like a 900-page paper on a particular or word uh, paper on a particular topic. um, People would do that, you know, for an English class or maybe a science class. I thought, well, why not with art? Why not give it more? credibility or uh, uh, purpose by just focusing on that without being distracted by other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, that was the other thing I mentioned also earlier about field trips, the important thing about that was not just being able to talk one on one with students away from the school. I could also see once we were in the museum or craft show, wherever we were, what they were drawn to. so that you know that was that was uh, fairly useful to me, I thought. Um, but, as I said, very few people did that, but the the ones that did do that they uh, they were um, I think they gained confidence, knowing that by putting in that extra time whatever they were working on was taken to the next level or a few levels beyond what it would have been if it was just like, oh, I gotta do this an hour for the next day. Mm-hmm. It took it beyond that that point. And I, I think that was important for them to understand that. Um, when we did figure drawing, we couldn't do new models, which is traditional and over the last couple hundred years anyway, mm-hmm. actually back beyond that. Um, I, as I said, uh, I worked with the theater director. They had quite an extensive wardrobe of costumes and period uh, suits and dresses mm-hmm. and so forth. So I was fortunate. I didn't borrow some of the more expensive pieces, but we were able to borrow top hats and uh, jackets and so forth from the 19th century or whatever period. And uh, so when we did figure drawing in the class, uh, it gave my students a chance to in a way, role play because if they put on a certain, like a 19th century Victorian top hat right. and suit, it made them kind of feel that part. And mm-hmm. So I had that beforehand, and then so when they could come in, they knew they were going to pose the next day. They could put that on, and we could get, you know, get rolling with that. So that that was that was uh, a help to have that. Um, I did confront them with the videos that were being done at that time. Uh, you're considered, I think, something, you're considered to be an eco-terrorist and you could be jailed now if you were to sneak into one of the factory farms uh, without permission uh, and Hmm. film what's going on there, the conditions of the chickens or the pigs or whatever animal you're dealing with. But in the mid-1970s and early 80s, uh, the group uh, PETA, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, were kind of routinely going in to these places. People said, oh, okay, yeah. you want to do some filming? It's all right, just you know, don't disturb the chickens and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would show my students some of these films that they had taken where hundreds of chickens were being mechanically killed, you know, hanging upside down. And mm. obviously a lot of people got upset, but this was in conjunction with the beginning of um, video classes that I was teaching. So it was relevant that way. It was uh, cinema verite in a way, documentary Mm -hmm. filmmaking. And um, so, but I would usually have them just do uh, a drawing related to that video, whatever, whatever reaction they might have to it. Um, So I tried to do some projects like that, rather than just dealing with traditional, Evolution of Western art or Asian art or African art, um, Native American. Um, so the other thing is that, and they already knew this when they came in the class, you could be very proficient as a drafts person. You could maybe draw very well or paint very well, but that alone was not enough. The technique was important, right? Yeah. But the other thing was the spirit. There's a spirit connected with it. And what direction is, is that going? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, without the feeling, without the passion in the piece that you're trying to get across, the idea you're trying to get across, it's it's not gonna be as effective or pull people, draw people into the image that you've created. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I tried to bring that up as much as I could. Um and as always, they knew that they could stop me if I was talking about something or if I wasn't doing a lecture or a demonstration, rather. They knew they could interrupt me at any time, ask a question or refute what I was saying or challenge it. I mean, mm-hmm. that was a given. Um, the general concept is that creativity flourishes in, a, in an atmosphere of freedom or liberty, as you, such as it is within a school or a college and um, constraint or overseeing someone trying to create something generally has a negative effect on it not always because constructive criticism can be constructive it can be useful but Mm -hmm. i try to keep that um, atmosphere going in you know in the classroom Uh, and i i realized pretty quickly i couldn't assume then, when people got home, that they had a place to actually draw or paint, especially mm. painting, because yeah. the parents might be upset about, you know, paint getting on whatever on the furniture or on the floor. Uh, so, for that reason, I tried to, knowing that people maybe didn't have a place, whether they lived in an apartment or a home, um, I tried to let that cl- our classroom, my classroom, be the place where they could do as much work as they could in a 15 minute period, which right. is not much because you got to introduce a little bit few minutes and then just clean up at the end five minutes. And mm-hmm. so it's a very limited time. I was usually there till six or seven in the early evening and people came in after school and did work after school if they wanted to work on a painting right. or work on the pottery wheel. I kept the room open, unless there was a faculty meeting, which were mm-hmm. Monday afternoon, mm-hmm. so. so I just, uh, Again, I, I said before, but uh, there were so many families in that community that I did rely on for a number of things, and they were they were always very supportive of uh, what I was doing, and also the theater, the music department. They were mm. they were always there. And I think they still are, maybe right. a generation, you know, down mm-hmm. the road. But I think it was that kind of a community that uh, they they were involved and. Uh, and I, you know, I wouldn't find out really what effect maybe some of the projects I had uh, had on my students until after they graduated and came back, whether they were working or went to college mm-hmm. for a year or two. They would come back and visit sometimes, and they would come back so often and make a comment about a project that they did, like one particular project, right. and and you know, thank me for it or said you know that was really helpful. like, you know. In hindsight, I realized why you did it, right. and maybe they didn't realize then why I was doing it. Mm-hmm. So th- that was good to hear. It was always good to hear from them coming back. Mm. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I keep in touch with I keep in touch with maybe four or five of my students right now from time to time, former students. Gotcha. So, but again, that's that's a few decades ago. You
1: know? Yeah, and I could I could relate to that just thinking back on. A specific art teacher that may have had, like, who comes to mind when I'm doing certain pieces, you know, who was kind of a very, very tough. She was very tough, right? And, um, I've gone into it a lot of times on recording, but you know, she, um, I almost felt as if she had favorites in mm. the class and I was not mm. one of them, oh, okay, and maybe. You know maybe she's seen a potential in me that I wasn't reaching, so she was tougher on me, but there are elements of that particular because I had her for two and a half years mm-hmm. in a row, right. So yeah, mm-hmm. like we we carry all these things, you know, and if it's a there are lessons that I feel like our minds put on the back burner mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. bring up later when it's when it's appropriate.
0: Yeah, there was an artist who lived in uh, Flemington. He he moved to Philadelphia later. But um, I'm just thinking of, his name was Leo Russell. I'm thinking of a print he did. He did a lot of self screening and it was a a figure on a a bicycle, two wheel bicycle pedaling along. And on his back he had this huge uh, bag, which was kind of transparent, sort of like a giant Santa Claus bag. Mm -hmm. And it was all these images of people and Sculptures and right. events in his life, and it was called. Uh, it was called. I carry my yesterdays with me, and I have two or three of his prints, uh, silk screens, But mm-hmm. he started early on in New York in uh, in TV production. There was uh, there was a TV show called Captain Video. It mm-hmm. was a precursor yeah. to Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. So he Leo did a lot of the uh, the sets. For Captain Video, he would do the background sets. Yeah. That's where he got set up. But, but he, yeah, he was uh, probably got some training and worked maybe with the Art Students League, I don't know. Um, but he was in his 60s, I think when he moved to Flemington. But uh, that was a great experience being there because he would, uh, his son Matthew was a musician and his daughter-in-law was sang and so when he had art openings, it was always very crowded. He had the live music uh, via his family, and uh, he it was very it was a really good experience to mm. just be there. And he would try to promote local artists. You know, have a different show every couple months. Right. That was that was a good experience. Um. Uh, there are people in the area here in the eastern area that are carrying that on. You know, trying to but. It's going to be slightly different. It's never going to be, you know, like it was. As I say, right. I think life moves on and evolves and changes and ends and then comes back again in a different, slightly different format or venue, you know, different feeling about it. Right. But uh, yeah, there were quite a number of galleries you were talking about um, California earlier when I was there. There was a number of people that had galleries and. Uh, kind of tried to have that uh, traditional feeling or uh, format for their openings. And part of that was, of course, to encourage people not only to come in and see the work or look at the work, but of course, you know, to buy the work. Because, you know, even, I know uh, now a lot of the the local galleries are charging 30 to 40 to 50% commission yeah. On work that they sell by local artists, and I think back then, it was it was much less. It was anywhere from 15 to 25 percent. So right. the prices were not as uh, high then, probably at least in the galleries that I was dealing with. Mm-hmm. So um, that's mm-hmm. important that that you know the brick the brick and mortar galleries continue in some form or, or another, just like real books will yeah. continue to exist as well as Mm -hmm. e-books they're not going to disappear and they that's a whole other issue but it's related to the culture that we're in here now in this country and elsewhere.
1: Uh, So you um, while you were out in California you had your work in art galleries?
0: Well because I was going to uh, graduate school full time such as it was 12 to 16 credits a semester. I was also working part-time the whole time mm-hmm. I was doing that, maybe 20 hours a week uh, doing graphic design and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, yeah so I did make time, I tried to make time to uh, exhibit work and there was just two galleries and I think I mentioned previously one of them folded and took my own work and yeah. work of some mm-hmm. other colleagues. but. Uh, uh, a lot of the people, um, the number of people I remember that bought two or three of my paintings happened to be uh, veterans, and they had recently gotten out of the military. They were in the, involved in the war in Vietnam, and uh, a lot, uh, a number of my works then that I wasn't doing for the courses at the college per se uh, were relating to to the war, and. Um, so they were they were drawn to those those subjects, and uh, of course I did other things also. I um, was also attracted, as always, to the beauty of nature. You had to go out a ways from where I lived in Long Beach. Long Beach, at that time, was it was a, there was a major Navy base there. Mm-hmm. There were at that time and still probably are a lot of retired people there. Right. And, and about um, what
1: year was, is this uh, 60
0: 1967 to 71 okay. and so and there were a number of uh, community colleges and regular colleges of course UCLA and USC in Los Angeles Pepperdine College was in LA I believe um, Long Beach State where I was uh, was about 20 miles from there so, I was kind of in two worlds or really three worlds I was uh, quite involved in what was going on on the campus we had a number of really excellent speakers come to talk on various subjects that were current at the time um, I had my the work I was doing for a couple of companies producing brochures it was pretty boring work but they were paying me to do it and it was it was valuable experience. I knew I didn't want to do that kind of thing again, and I, and I, didn't for the most part. But um, and the other thing was uh, getting more involved in uh, protesting against the Vietnam War. Uh, a number of my acquaintances and friends were. Pretty heavily involved in that, in organizing uh, protests, and it got to the point where there were a number of major uh, national uh, mobilization against the war. It was called, and it's not a new. It's not a new thing. Um, I know in World War One there was a. I was just reading yesterday about an Italian, a sculptor, uh, who came from Italy and he, he got his start during the Works Progress Administration mm-hmm. in the 1930s, which was very important because the government basically employed artists and musicians and photographers to create works in buildings, in sculpture, outside of buildings. This particular person was opposed to World War I and uh, we were, the government was trying to rally people to, to join the army and go to fight the Huns Mm-hmm. And the sculptor actually cut off one of his fingers. This guy was a well-known sculptor. Cut off his finger. He sent it to President Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> and he said, I hope this will help with the war effort. He actually did that. Wow. So, so there are extremes. There, are, there, there were monks that were burning themselves yeah, in yeah. Vietnam because they thought nobody's paying attention to what's going on, maybe maybe this will right. help. Uh, and so in, in with that going on, I was more, uh, over a gradual period of time, over a year, I was pulled more into that sphere, I think, into what I could do to help with, with that, whether it was creating artwork or making signs that could be put up in a public place Mm -hmm. saying there's gonna be a rally or a talk here about the war specifically or civil rights specifically, whatever it might be. Uh, So I got more involved in that and kind of got pulled away I think from my purpose for being at the college. Um, So like you were saying earlier, it's all grist for the mill. I was able to utilize all those experiences Mm -hmm. and share them with people and uh, incorporate them in, in my art um, there were a lot of people I remember in the area where I live getting arrested uh, like especially on the weekends for being under the influence or using drugs in public or whatever mm-hmm. um, and I remember you know a number of times these people I didn't know I, I'd either be walking or riding my bike or I'd be driving and I'd see the police you know pulled somebody over and I would stop in front of them, not behind them, but in front right. of them. If I was in a car and I'd go back and the police would look and see me coming at them. And they'd give me a look like, don't get any closer, right. you know, cause they're putting the cuffs on this guy. And I would just say, and he would look, they would, he would look cause he would, look, who are they talking to? And he would look and I'd say, can I do anything for you? And he said, yeah, call my wife, you know. He rattled off his number. I go, fine, I'll call her. I'll let her know you're okay, but you're. I'd say, Where are you taking them? And wouldn't tell me. It was Long Beach police, so, Uh you know, she would figure it out. But um, there were things going on all the the time. I had nothing to do with this, but there was a branch of Bank of America in Santa Barbara that was uh, bombed. Somebody set Mm -hmm. a bomb off outside of it. The residents got very upset, of course. And um, so there was a lot of uh, push and shove and and aggression on both sides, I think. Mm -hmm. The people that were trying to bring attention to the inequalities in in daily life or the waste of the war. Um, So that was, you know, a constant uh, reality. And then there'd be events like giant fires. I remember a building a factory caught on fire about three blocks from where I lived. And I was out one night and I looked over and I saw, hey, it's not sunrise yet. It's like 10 <laughs> o'clock at night and seeing this light coming up three blocks away. So I would go over and yeah, this building was totally engulfed and there'd be like 30 or 40 people just standing like looking at it. And wow. Fire truck would be there trying to put it out. And uh, that was incorporated into a drawing. I remember I did a drawing of that. I, I, I have to admit, I, I bartered with other artists for their work, exchanging artwork. I sold things very cheaply, like for $10, $15, mm-hmm. paint, small paintings, Right. you know, just cover the cost of materials, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But uh, I guess there was a the community I was in and the people that I knew that was kind of, that's where, uh, It's not new, but the idea of food cooperatives were starting also. And so farmers markets within the city. So that was new to me. I knew where I had grown up, there was one or two, but that was new to me there. There were bookshops that were starting to open up, record stores, of course. So that was a chance for people to to get together and share ideas Mm -hmm. and uh, experiment, uh, with different ideas. Like artistically? Artistically and otherwise. Um, I tried to avoid, I wasn't really much into drinking, I tried to avoid going to bars generally, but I would go if there was a local band playing, you know, felt like listening to some music, I would, mm-hmm. you know, I would go there, but and you never know who you would run into. And often, I made a few friends that way. Um, I got interested in vegetarianism through a couple that I met. I think they bought a print print of mine. I had some prints made offset, offset uh, printing style. And um, they had a baby that was about a year and a half old. And um, they were making a living uh, catering parties from where I was in Long Beach up to Hollywood, Los Angeles. They would, uh, whatever it might be, birthday party uh, bar mitzvah, uh, somebody's anniversary, mm-hmm. uh, company party. Um, they worked out of their van. They had a van, and they would, they would cook a lot of the food beforehand, load it up, get their kid in the car, and, mm-hmm. and take off. And uh, so that's that's basically, there were a couple that got me interested in uh, Buddhism and vegetarianism, mm-hmm. and, and some other people too that were of uh Similar mind, mm. and that kind of directly had an influence on on my work, uh, especially pen and ink drawings I did. Mm-hmm. So they were they were sort of like uh, like you would do automatic writing, where you just start writing as in a journal, kind of free thought. Um, I let a lot of drawings develop that way, where I I kind of had a general idea or a memory of a scene from a week ago or yesterday, mm-hmm. and just. Instead of writing about it, I would put it down visually as a visual image and just keep expanding Mm. to the point where it kind of told the story, if you could figure it out, and then I would set it aside, done, and then do a new sheet for the next idea or next story. So Those never were developed, they just existed as entities unto themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm. Done, never, never followed them. Uh, I mentioned also earlier when we were talking before we started this right. conversation about animation. Um, that was one of the things I was always interested in. and that was the first time I took an animation course was at the college there. So that was that was very interesting. You know, we started out with very basic things, you know, uh, using a fig moving a figure through a landscape. Also having a ball kind of bouncing along with this figure and mm. having uh, somebody on a bicycle going the other direction and maybe the weather changing over a five-minute film. Right. So, you know, it was maybe 300 cells, you know, 8 by 11 paper. Right. And, of course, you didn't have to rethink the wheel. You'd have the last drawing. You'd, just, you'd put your next page over that. You'd basically mm. trace what you had and then move something a little bit, you know, because you would maybe film that for four frames if you're using 16 frames a second. So you could either slow down or speed it up according to that. Right. So that's something I might have stayed with if I had you know, focused on that, but, but I didn't. I, I did a lot of welded steel sculpture there too. Mm-hmm. And uh, the main thing I remembered there was I really became very uh, proficient at making uh, color viscosity etchings and uh, the teacher's name was Richard Smith, or Dick uh, Dick Swift, excuse me, and uh, he had worked with Stanley Hader, who was a famous English printmaker, and some other people in New York, and then he he was from Long Beach, and he ended up staying there and teaching, I think he was the head of the printmaking department, but uh, I was always uh, thankful for having taken that course, Uh, I learned a lot, I learned about Also, mainly about how difficult it is to make an addition of even 10 prints using color viscosity we're using different uh, viscosities of the ink the blue might be very oily the yellow ink might be very dry with very little oil in it different rollers hard rollers soft rollers to go into the soft rollers would apply ink into the recessed areas the hard rollers would with oily ink on the surface of the plate would reject the less oily blueing, which would go into the recessed areas. Mm-hmm. Easy to do one print, but very difficult to do 10 or 15, you know, really close. Right. So I, I always appreciated that. And uh, it's probably one of the reasons I have my students understand etchings at my the high school where I taught, because if nothing else, and they got pretty, pretty good at what they did, they would appreciate the process when they would go to a museum or see an etching in somebody's house they go oh yeah mm-hmm. I did that <laughs> Wow <laughs> this is what I could have done if you know I stayed with it right.
1: when you were doing um, animation at that school I'm just curious did they have you do any rotoscope stuff or
0: no I if okay. we if we did I, I don't think okay. I don't think that I did. Because okay. I think I would have remembered it. Right. Could could you explain what it is? Um,
1: so rotoscope was used a lot. Um, I experimented with it. Okay. A little bit. Uh, it was used by Walt Disney, and then later on popularized by like Ralph Bakshi, and it was yes. the animation style of filming an actual person and then tracing over it frame by frame by frame. Yeah. Um, things like Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Song
0: of the South, I think they did that. I'm okay, sure. yeah, yeah, I haven't
1: I haven't seen that one, but yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Huh? Um, so I did like a minute and a half clip of like a jazz dancer, because I was a fan of the Bakshi films, right? And right. wanted to give it a shot, right? You know, like sure. just so um, it was fun, t- tedious, mm-hmm.
0: but yeah, that's. Uh, it's good that you brought that up because, as in any college or technical schools, uh, there's not every major that's available to everybody that might be interested in something more obscure. So with the animation, I think it was probably something that was just starting up at that college. Gotcha. Somebody decided to start that program and maybe it was a year or two old. So they were starting at the beginning with what they knew. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, Who knows? I'm sure they've included that long since, you know. But thanks for explaining that. I'm aware of it. I didn't know it was called that.
1: Yeah, I I I forget it often, and then I remember, and then I forget again. But um, yeah, it was it was it was a fun fun experiment to do. So were um your fellow artists at that time um, were they also doing a lot of like social and politically driven? pieces of art Uh, or at least a
0: couple a couple a couple of them were um I'd have to say I knew fairly well three or four artists uh one had no formal training but he really liked Vincent van Gogh's work and he was he would copy his work he would look at a reproduction of it and try to reproduce it himself he was teaching that way um my neighbor for about a year was using um, various psychedelic and psychotropic material, uh, materials, mm. um, ingesting various things and smoking various <laughs> things. And he, um, he was doing very whimsical work kind of uh, drawing from the interior and, uh, almost like cartoon characters, but within kind of a real landscape, I, I suppose you'd say. Um, I don't know where he went from there. He, he was doing that for about a year, and then he moved He moved on and a uh, different neighbor moved in, who was not involved at all in, in the arts. But um, I'd say, that there was a point about for about a year and a half where I kind of sequestered myself from uh, being influenced by other artists. I mm-hmm. just was focused on what I was doing, which is kind of selfish in a way, but uh, on the other hand, it really helps you to focus on where it is you're trying to go with what you're doing, what you're trying right. to say. and. Uh, That was fine. I came out of that pretty abruptly and uh, went back to um, drawing from life really with -hmm. with a sketchbook primarily. Um, I took a lot of photographs while I was there also. So I had uh, a two and a quarter by two and a quarter uh, camera and taking mostly black and white photographs. So I I had access to a darkroom at the college so I could make prints I could work from those photographs to develop some of the paintings and I also work from some of the sketchbooks that I had um, so that was yeah that was they, they were all important and the only other really major contact was when we had openings with the aforementioned couple of galleries two or three galleries that uh, I was involved with uh, that was a chance to really talk at some depth, you know, with the mm-hmm. other artists. Right? Right. Now, also, of course, at the college, there was obviously a visual art department, and they did have exhibits. So we occasionally would have, probably twice a year, we would have an opportunity to uh, include work, probably one piece or two pieces, depending on how many, you know, other artists were involved. And I, I think we had the option to sell our work or not. Mm -hmm. Most people did not opt to try to sell their work because it was probably part of a portfolio to take for job interviews Mm -hmm. and they wanted to have the original work uh, to to show potential Mm employers. Yeah.
1: Okay, was I right or was I right, people? That was a pretty solid podcast if you ask me. Look, you can check out Don Wilson's work At weTube.us slash Don Wilson visual artist. You could check out Isaac's work on Instagram at when underscore in underscore zen. And of course, you could check out my work on my Patreon page and on Instagram at Albert Shivers. I want to really thank Don for doing this episode, it means a lot. We're going to have Don back on again very soon and I want to thank Isaac for helping me record this episode. You can find this episode and more on all major podcast platforms and YouTube with video. Please go also check out some of Mabel Lee's work as we've talked about before and until next time take care of yourself and take care of somebody else.